It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. America's chip-making champion, Intel, has a reputation for being hermetically sealed. But a new boss is opening its gates and shaking up the industry in the process. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane. And also coming up on today's show, how the pandemic is transforming global cities. What has seemed to me to be most robust is the human desire to be with other human beings. And as bricks and mortar shops reopen, two eye-catching IPOs are a test for the direct-to-consumer industry. Both these firms could be set for a rude awakening. It used to be that virtually all PCs ran on Windows software and chips made by Intel. With that almighty partnership known as Wintel, for a long time, Intel and Microsoft made a formidable pair. But that insularity, and perhaps a touch of arrogance, also threatened to be their undoing. So when Satya Nadella took over as CEO of Microsoft in 2014, he started by opening up Windows to competition from the likes of Linux. It was part of a shakeup that helped Microsoft to a stunning revival and a market value of over $2 trillion. Now, half a year in, Intel's new boss, Pat Gelsinger, wants to throw open some windows of his own. It's a strategy that, whether it succeeds or fails, could reshape a $600 billion industry at the heart of the global economy. I mean, Intel is still, and has been for a long time, the world's biggest maker of semiconductors. Not in volume, but they make the most money. Ludwig Ziegler is our US technology editor. Intel's recipe for success has been that uh, it's an integrated device manufacturer. Uh, that's, that's the term of art in, in the chip industry. And that means that it both designs its chips, but also runs the factories that make those chips. That's been traditionally the setup in, in, in the chip industry, but that has changed in, in recent years. So now it's, it's more common that there's companies specializing in designing chips, and then there's companies that specialize in, in, in making the chips. A design company, for example, is NVIDIA. So the GPUs, the, the, the computing engines that power video games is one example. The big example for a company that specializes in, in, in just producing the chips is TSMC. That's a Taiwanese company, very big, the world's biggest foundry, as people call it. But Intel's market capitalization is now lagging far behind both TSMC's and NVIDIA's. Why has it lost its mojo? I've said that that Intel is an integrated uh, device manufacturer, and that was its big strength. But that kind of setup uh, has become a big drag on Intel because it can't work as well with outside partners. Its factories can also only produce its own chips, and so it's become too closed. It's made also some some 
bad technological bets. Uh, it had, uh, I think, a, a rather complacent uh, management. How so? What sort of bad tech bets have really held it back? I mean, there's there, there's many things, but I, one one thing it's missed the mobile revolution. So Intel is historically has has made chips for personal computers. That was its strength, and, and then it started making chips for big data centers for for cloud computing. A parallel ecosystem emerged, uh, making chips for for iPhones based on ARM designs. And those ARM chips are then made at TSMC. So because Intel missed that, it allowed a completely different set of companies to emerge, uh, which are now bigger and better uh, than Intel. It wasn't flexible enough. So what Mr. Geldinger now wants to do is opening up Intel, taking apart the monolithic system that, that is Intel. He's got quite the task ahead of him. How is he going to try and do it? He has said he will use foundries, contract manufacturers like like TSMC to take advantage of their superior manufacturing technique, but he will also create its own foundry, kind of a competitor to TSMC, where people can come and, and have their chips made. Before Intel was this monolith, uh, only made chips for itself. Now it wants to become more open to the world and also offer its intellectual property to other firms. So if you are a big cloud provider like AWS or, or Microsoft, what you could do is go to Intel and uh, say, okay, we want uh, this chip design and we want to mix and match it with other chip designs and please make this custom-made chip for us. That's basically Gelsinger's plan. And presumably this isn't going to come cheap because if he's going to build or to buy foundries, semiconductor factories, these are very big things. They're very expensive. How much is this going to cost? I mean, tens of billions, and it's not quite clear how much. Uh, but what Intel has said is that it will build two new fabs, fabs, it's are these chip factories in Arizona, uh, each of which will cost around $10 billion. But that's only the beginning. Uh, Intel has made similar noises about building fabs in, in Europe. It will build more in, in the US. Uh, so <laughs> the price tag could be well, well be beyond 50 billion or even more. And that's why Intel also wants the help of the government. The argument is if we build a fab in the, in the US, that's gonna be 30 to 40% uh, more expensive than in Asia. So governments, please give us some money and we can create more jobs. Right now, 80% of chip fabrication capacity resides in Asia, only 15% in the US and only 5% in Europe. And that creates all kinds of geopolitical problems. And Intel basically offers itself as, as a service provider to balance out that imbalance. But it's expensive, and so governments also have to pony up some money. Okay, so there could be some enormous benefits for, for Intel, also some enormous risks. What might it mean for the industry as a whole for its main competitors, the likes of TSMC and NVIDIA, and for its customers. Intel doesn't only want to open up, it also wants to kind of jump ahead in, in, in fabrication technology, right? If Intel fails with that, that of course is bad for Intel. It, it, it will continue to decline. Uh, already now, TSMC is, is worth more than twice as much as Intel. But it's also bad, I think, for the world. I mean, it could extend the, the chip shortage, at least in the, in the short run. In the long term, it would mean that there's more consolidation or even more concentration in the chip industry. And it would most certainly mean that Asia's position as the main source of uh, semiconductors will be cemented. And I think a lot of people won't be happy about that. Pat Gelsinger is making an enormous bet on the future of Intel. He's virtually betting the company if there are going to be tens of billions at stake. Is it going to pay off, do you think? First off, I, I think it's, it's a very good thing that Gelsinger is making this bet because part of what happened at Intel is that they were not taking risks anymore and, and Gelsinger is taking risks. 
governments want them to succeed. The market for, for semiconductors won't shrink anytime soon. So he has some runway. And I mean, there's a precedent. Microsoft, even though they make software, did something similar a, a few years back when Satya Nadella, their CEO, took over. It's more difficult for Intel than for Microsoft, but still, I think it's the right strategy. Ludwig Siegler, thank you very much. Thanks, Patrick. 21st century cities are an unprecedented concentration of human life. Millions, sometimes tens of millions of people, crammed and crowded together, everyone trying to get closer to the centre. They're pulled inwards by the sheer urgency of surviving, working, socialising, living in close proximity with others. Mind the gap. In a place that seeds with energy, with enterprise, innovation, art and life. If you'd asked me any time before last year, I'd have said that in a true city, there's never enough space. Never enough time. It never sleeps. And it's never quiet. Except then... Well, we all know what happened. COVID-19 seemed almost like an existential threat to our urban world. Edward Glazer is the chair of economics at Harvard University. Ten years ago, his book, The Triumph of the City, celebrated urbanisation as the key to progress and prosperity. The past 18 months have called all of that into question. If you're going to define cities as the absence of physical space between people, then the social distancing that became ubiquitous after, let's say, March 20 was just the rapid-fire de-urbanisation of the world. Now, he and David Cutler, also a Harvard economist and an expert in public health, have written a new book, The Survival of the City. It's a reckoning with the shortcomings of what they still call humanity's greatest invention, and a blueprint for its future. Edward Glazer spoke to our senior economics writer, Callum Williams, for Money Talks. And it seemed also not only that that COVID was striking against cities, but that they were more vulnerable than they had been in many decades, in part because of the, the urban consensus that had existed around sort of pragmatic, centrist politics, which was still dominant in 2001. That seems to have largely fallen apart over the last decade. I've been surprised by how slow the recovery of urban centres has been. I was wandering around the financial districts in San Francisco last week, and it was was pretty shocking, actually. I mean, it looked more like a late 1970s Rust Belt city than it did a kind of thriving tech hub. So have you been surprised by by kind of how slow the recovery seems to have been, or is this kind of what you expected? I think it is slower than I, I would have expected, for sure. What has seemed to me to be most robust is the human desire to be with other human beings. Now, maybe that's partially because I work on a college campus, but 
you know, those 19-year-olds are so hungry for human interaction, that feels normal. Whereas the people who are just going to work because they're going to work, that seems like it's be proven to be most vulnerable. And in some sense, it, it points to the possibility, at least, that the consumer side of cities, the you know recreational side of cities, may in fact prove to be at least as robust as the commercial uh, or productive side of cities. So just to push that slightly further, in the kind of Ed Glazer mental model of, of urban rebound that you had in, in 2020, which bit of that model proved most wrong? Was it predominantly a Delta thing? So it's like a variant bit that was wrong, or is it is it something else? Yes, I think the fact that the disease is still ongoing is the the first thing. I don't expect long-term vacancies in San Francisco. I expect those offices to be filled again. In part, you know, even if you think this is a 20% hit to demand for, you know, commercial real estate, if you start at $80 a square foot pre-pandemic, that pulls you to $64 a square foot post-pandemic. And that still means they're going to be occupied. Uh, you know, you may get large-scale vacancies in Cleveland or Detroit, where you started much closer to the edge. But uh, for the real estate market to work its way through and for those offices to get refilled again, we're going to need to get past Delta. One interpretation of what's going on at the moment is the idea that this whole trend is actually really positive. Because what you had before COVID was a relatively small bunch of incredibly productive but very, very expensive cities. So San Francisco being you know, a really good example of that. But London also, Sydney, New York, and so on. And then what you've got now is you've got a slightly more even spread of activity where suburbs are getting more of a look in, perhaps even some rural areas are getting more of a look in. And that's a good thing. What, what, do, you, what do you make of that argument? So I think certainly that technologies that give us more options are generally very good things. And I think that that's true of remote working as well. From the perspective of the system as a whole, competition for talent has just gotten much fiercer because it's become easier for firms to relocate. And while I don't really believe in a world in which these, you know, the thriving small hot tech company just says, oh, just dial it in. We're going to let you all go from home. I certainly do believe that they may think, well, San Francisco is ungodly expensive. We love you know, skiing. Why don't we relocate to Vail? That's a perfectly you know, sensible model. And from the perspective of that company, that's all to the good. From the perspective of San Francisco, it means you've lost a little bit of your monopoly power over workers. And so that's a little bit worrying. And I think one of the reasons why we wrote the book was to emphasize to cities that if they want to hold on to that talent, they're going to have to treat it seriously. And they're going to have to actually up their game and figure out ways to satisfy the progressive hunger to deal with the very real inequities of modern urban areas without actually, you know, you know, taxing the heck out of your rich people or letting urban amenities, urban quality of life deteriorate. Do you think that U.S. cities have too much commercial property relative to residential property? I think post-COVID, for sure, we're going to see a, a demand for rebalancing. Absolutely. I don't see a lack of people who actually want to live in San Francisco or live in New York. And so if the number of offices goes down, particularly Class C commercial, the sort of low-end commercial, I can imagine a huge push to rebalance that. And remember, pre-COVID, we were still figuring out what the heck we were doing with ground floor retail. The prevalent model is the move from stores that sell goods to stores that sell experiences. But I don't know if there's enough demand for that to you know, take up the slack. And if, if not, residential is the most natural alternative. I'd be interested to know if there is a city or city government anywhere in the world you see that you think is kind of embarked on a on a sort of post-COVID strategy that you approve of. Is that one? I think we're still in, in the world of dealing with the pandemic rather than with the with the post-COVID strategy. As always, you know, I look to Singapore for good government in lots of areas, although to be clear, my own tastes in cities are a little bit messier, right? I'm a kid of New York in the 1970s, so I, I, I need a slightly grittier city. But boy, they are an incredibly well-run place. Seoul is also always very impressive, and, and Tokyo. I don't think the U.S. cities have gotten really post-COVID. I mean, the interesting thing was the New York mayoral race 
went towards the pragmatic center rather than towards the the progressive left, which is an, which is an interesting turn. I think. Look, I mean, the track record is. We've had 3,000 years of absolutely miraculous things happening in cities. We've had 3,000 years of human beings working together and learning from each other. And even though individual cities may be vulnerable, the age of the city is not gone. The key is just to make sure that cities do a better job of their historic task of making sure they turn poor children into rich adults than they have. That's what we really do need to see in 2022. And I haven't seen any certainly American city that has managed to take that on. So there's a lot of work to do. Ed Fazer, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you very much. Subscribers can read Callum's analysis of the greatest challenges facing the world's cities in this week's issue of The Economist and online at economist.com. You'll also find explorations of how cities can prepare for flooding and, far from the madding crowd, how the rural southwest of America hopes to cash in on its dark skies. If you're not a subscriber already, you can find the best introductory deal at economist.com forward slash podcast offer. That link is in the notes for this episode. And finally, direct-to-consumer brands are everywhere now. As the name suggests, these companies skip the middlemen, the distributors and the third-party retailers who have traditionally held the keys to reaching big markets. They model themselves on tech companies, in fact building on infrastructure often provided by Amazon or Shopify. They've poured billions of venture capitalist money into clever marketing rather than into shop floors. And in that way, they aim to undercut and outcompete more established brands trying to reach digital natives. A decade in, the market looked to be reaching saturation, but the arrival of the pandemic pushed even more customers online. Now, with high streets and malls open again, can the direct-to-consumer boom last? Direct-to-consumer, or DTC brands, do date back to the dawn of the internet, but 2021 could provide a test of where the future of this industry lies. Shamli Badgayan writes about business and finance for The Economist. The pandemic triggered an e-commerce explosion that helped many of these startups survive, but concerns around the business model have re-emerged as customers log off once again. Two DTC giants, Warby Parker and Allbirds, filed to go public in recent weeks and maybe the ones to watch. But it's more interesting than usual, isn't it? Because they've both chosen an unusual route to, to the stock market. Yeah, so Warby Parker has chosen a direct listing route, which is a common choice for these so-called disruptive firms like Spotify or Coinbase. So the benefit of this is that you can save money compared to a normal IPO that would typically go to an investment bank and skip the roadshow, which works if your company is kind of already well known. It can also help the firm kind of keep in line with its brand identity. So Allbirds, on the other hand, is pursuing what it calls a sustainable public equity offering, which is basically something that it hopes can be used in the future to signal that a firm has been vetted to keep in line with defined ESG criteria. And what do investors think of these companies? How are Warby Parker and Allbirds expected to perform when they go public? So their performance will really present a test of whether the enthusiasm in the public market will be as high as it has been in private capital. This obviously will have implications for their future growth. So Casper, a DTC company that was said to have disrupted the mattress industry, had a less than stellar IPO in 2020, which since made investors wary. It was valued privately at over a billion and today has a market cap of about 200 million or so. Warby Parker was privately valued at $3 billion last year and Allbirds at nearly $2 billion. Both these firms could be set for a rude awakening. 
it seems that private investors have been really very friendly and really very generous to direct consumer firms. Why might the public market be less friendly to them? So there are several reasons for concern. Many DTC firms are loss making. So the recent filings showed that both Warby Parker and Allbirds accumulated widening losses in 2020, despite their higher sales. Now, some of this may be due to costs related to the pandemic, but there's also a bigger concern regarding how much marketing costs these DTC firms. This affects smaller firms too. So as competition has grown in the DTC space, costs of an ad on Instagram and Facebook jumped from an average of 25 cents in 2017 to now 80 cents in 2020. Now, this may not seem a lot, but if you really look at how many ads need to be sent out to target millennials and Gen Z and other kind of digitally native customers, it can really add up. There are also occasionally concerns around the management of these firms. The examples of Away, which makes very sleek suitcases, and Outdoor Voices, which sold apparel, have made investors reluctant because both firms had their CEOs ousted. So there have been some difficulties in DTC and with some of the specific companies you mentioned. But what about the brands that are still managing to get through the noise and the difficulty? What marks them out? Yeah, so we're seeing some interesting new approaches in the wake of this trend. One is to go after industries where large-scale incumbents perhaps don't exist and begin to brand essentially aspects of consumers' lives that were often or previously seen as commodities. So think house paints, pest control, dog collars, all now becoming aspirational branded DTC goods. A good example of this is Figs, which makes medical scrubs for healthcare professionals and has a very enthusiastic following of 1.6 million people that wear its kind of premium, functional, very cool looking scrubs. In May, Figs went public in an IPO that was very warmly received and valued at more than $4.5 billion. Unusually, it also revealed that it was profitable which is a relative rarity in the industry. Now, another model in this space is also the rise of the consumer good holding company. One that leads the pack is Thrasio, which essentially snaps up hundreds of ordinary Amazon brands and applies this 503-point plan to morph them into what they call profit-doubling machines. So, for example, it grew revenues of a pet odor eliminator eightfold by improving marketing and distribution. It's crowded itself as the fastest profitable U.S. company to ever reach a billion-dollar valuation. Wow. So is this the way the future is going to look in DTC then? Either companies trying to emulate figs by branding things that weren't branded or had been neglected, or going into holding companies. Are those two trends the future, do you think? So it does look like it, but replicating the fortunes of figs or Thrasio will still be difficult. So we're seeing a large number of firms trying to go into this brand the unbranded strategy, which is what um, the co-founders of figs call it and offer these millennial chic quality alternatives. There's a firm called Tend, which makes dentistry an experience fitted with Netflix and aromatherapy. What Thrasio does is also being emulated. Competitors like Win Brands and Pattern Brands are also looking to kind of roll up these businesses and manage them under one umbrella. Tall profit margins will still draw entrants, both large and small. So Casper, once the first of its kind, now has an estimated 175 DTC mattress competitors. But neither model, of course, guarantees profitability. It's unclear how many holding companies the industry will really have room for. The lesson may not be a new playbook, but maybe a return to the relentless focus on business fundamentals. That certainly will be a welcome one. Shamli Badgain, thank you very much. Thank you. And if you want to learn more about how the way we shop is changing, have a listen to our episode of Money Talks from March 16th this year, called The Retail Revolution. You'll hear from the likes of the president of Shopify, 
which makes the e-commerce infrastructure on which many of these direct-to-consumer firms run, and Pinduoduo, a Chinese giant which pioneered social commerce. That's Money Talks, the retail revolution, wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's all for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. While you're with us, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Or if you prefer to skip the middleman, you can write to us directly at podcasts at economist.com. I'm Patrick Lane, and in London, this is The Economist. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.